Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be with you. And um, keep that passage open if you've uh, got it there in your, in your Bibles or on your device. And, and let me pray for us uh, as we begin. And we want to say with the psalmist, Father, this morning, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Father, please would that be each of our prayers this morning as we approach your word now. For your glory's sake and for our good. Amen. So we're coming to, uh, coming to the end uh, this morning of this, uh, this series in 1 Peter, what I called uh, Life on Mission in the New Normal. Um, and, and as we noted uh, right at the beginning of the, the letter, it, it's a letter that's written in the first century um, to uh, scattered and struggling uh, missionary churches, churches living in pagan environments on the margins of their society um, and, and facing opposition and trials as they seek to live for Christ in the world. And, and, and although the, you know, the time and the place of the letter is, is a very different time and place from ours, yet, I, I hope we've seen, actually the basic context is remarkably similar. Uh, because these are people who, uh, before becoming Christians, were, were part of the, the mainstream life of their communities, but, but now are finding themselves, having become Christians, uh, pushed to the margins of a society that's becoming increasingly hostile to their Christian faith. So it's a new normal for them. Um, and a similar new normal to, to the one that we are having to get used to as, as our society uh, is fast shedding its, its cultural Christian heritage and moorings and becoming a post-Christian culture, meaning that Christians are, are no longer at the center of our society as perhaps we used to be, but we're increasingly being pushed to the margins of it. We're, we're not the, the moral majority uh, anymore, but, but we're more uh, an immoral minority. That's how we're viewed, sort of uh, ignored or tolerated at, at best, uh, opposed or persecuted at worst. Uh, and as Peter opened his letter, if you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 1, he's wanted to begin by reminding Christians that this is to be expected. Our, our identity, he says in, in chapter 1, verse 1, is that of of elect exiles. We're chosen by God, we're citizens of his kingdom, and so we're scattered, we're dispersed as exiles in this world. That's what it means to be chosen of God. It means we don't belong here because we belong there. We're, we're citizens of his kingdom, which means we're aliens in this one. We're, we're outsiders, we're foreigners. So that's how he begins the letter, and, and now notice in this morning's passage how he ends the letter. Have a look with me at chapter 5 and verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, it might not be easy to spot there, but he's actually ending the letter in the same way that he began it. 
So, so he's writing the letter almost certainly from Rome and he sends the greetings of the church in Rome. But you might not be able to spot that because he calls the church in Rome rather cryptically in verse 13, she who is at Babylon. And I think he calls Rome Babylon because that pretty much sums up his situation. The, the, the church in Rome where, where he's writing from, whose greetings he sends, is like God's people of old. They're, they're, they're like exiles in Babylon. And, and so he's writing this letter as an exile and he's sending the greetings of one bunch of exiles in Rome to another bunch of exiles in, in Turkey. Do, do you see? But also notice in verse 13 that Rome is not only likened to Babylon, but that the church in Rome is also made up of those who are likewise chosen. In, in other words, elect. Do you see? So, so here's a letter written by one elect exile to other elect exiles in Turkey and bringing the greetings of more elect exiles in Rome. That, that's who we are, he says. And as he says in the verse above, look, verse 12, he's written the letter in order to exhort and declare that, that these elect exiles should stand firm in what he calls the true grace of God. In other words, he's writing the letter in order to encourage God's chosen people to keep standing firm in the midst of the, the suffering and the opposition that they're getting buffeted by as, as they uh, live as exiles for Christ. And, and if you've been with us through, through this series, you'll, you'll recognize this is what he's been doing right through the letter, isn't it? He's been encouraging them in chapter 1 with the hope of heaven. That is theirs because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead so that they live with hope. Um, in chapters 1 and 2, he's been reminding them that they're a holy people, a, a chosen people, the temple that God is building so that they live with holiness. And then in chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12, he, he sets out for them how elect exiles are to live within society. And he shows them that it's not by capitulating to the culture around them, and neither is it by separating from the culture around them, but rather it's by living attractional lives within the culture, lives of turning away from sin and doing good, which he says will, will yield spiritual results as some see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. And then he applies that way of living in, in chapters 2 and 3 into various areas of the Christian life, into our lives as, as citizens and workers and, and wives and husbands. And, and then he develops through uh, chapters 3 and 4 what he's hinted at right from the beginning, which is that the, the environment into which they are to live out this, this attractional Christ-like life is, is not a neutral environment and it's not a supportive environment, but it's a hostile one, one, one in which we should expect to suffer as a result of standing up for Christ. But even in this kind of environment, we're called to be a blessing, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, and, and to follow the example of Christ, his, his suffering, his service, his sacrifice. Uh, and then he's wrapped up that section, as we saw last week at the end of chapter 4, by urging us to embrace the, the pattern of Christ's living, uh, a, a pattern of suffering followed by glory. This was the, the pattern of his living, and Peter calls us 
to embrace the same pattern in our living, that the pattern of embracing suffering now, knowing that one day those who share in Christ's sufferings will also share in his glory. And and now, as he concludes the letter here in chapter 5, he applies this pattern of suffering followed by glory, firstly to Christian leaders in verses 1 to 4, and then to Christian churches in verses 5 to 11. And, and in both cases, his aim is to enable us to stand firm in the true grace of God, verse 12. In other words, friends, that, that this concluding passage addresses the issue of uh, what kind of church leadership and what kind of church membership is needed if churches are to live on mission for Christ in a, in a hostile world. And the answer is that it's leadership and membership that embraces the pattern of Christ's life, the, the pattern of suffering followed by glory. So that's, I think, what we're going to see. Have a look firstly with me at verses 1 to 4, embracing suffering and glory in church leadership. And if you have a look at verse 1, you'll, you'll see that he's addressing the elders among them. In other words, the, uh, the, the, the spiritual leaders of the church. So he talks about them shepherding the flock uh, in verse 2. That's where we get the word pastor from. Um, and, and of them exercising oversight uh, in verse Two. So, so why begin your final chapter, you know, what's going to be the, the big rallying call of the letter, by addressing church leaders? Well, I, I think it's because if the church as a whole is going to live for Christ as elect exiles in this hostile environment, well then its leaders are going to need to be especially encouraged and equipped. It, it's actually the same in any environment, isn't it? For, you know, from sports teams or businesses or families or, or government. If you've got bad leadership, then you're likely to be heading for trouble. And, and in the church as well, it's essential that there is good leadership because without it, churches flounder, uh, which of course is a far more serious prospect, isn't it, than businesses floundering or sports teams floundering because we're dealing with matters of eternal uh, importance. So Peter appeals to these elders in verse 1 as a fellow elder. His, his uh, ministry as an apostle is largely the same as theirs as, as elders. But notice that he also appeals to them as a witness of Christ's sufferings and a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's making the point that he, like, like the elders he's addressing here, is someone embracing the pattern of Christ's life, of sharing in his sufferings now as he looks forward to sharing in his glory to come. So so that pattern of Christ's life that we saw last week is is kind of to be stamped on, on the lives of every Christian, is to be stamped on the lives of leaders as well. First there is suffering and then there is glory. That was the pattern for Christ. That's the pattern for every Christian. That is to be the pattern of those who lead God's flock. Do you you see? So so what does he urge such leaders to be doing? Well, verse 2, they are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising 
oversight. And, and one thing that struck me straight away there is that such leaders are shepherding God's flock. Do, do you notice that? Um, uh, I guess it's a, a bit of a, a pet hate of mine. I, I used to see it in industry back in the day uh, when managers, you know, they talk about my people or, or my department or my organization or my team or, or worst of all in the church, my church. And, and, you know, Grace Church isn't Steve's church or Ollie's church or Rob or Anthony's church. It's God's church, isn't it? And, and God puts human leaders in place to lead his church, not their church. We're to shepherd God's flock, verse 2, which makes leaders under shepherds, not the shepherd. We, we lead God's people under God. Um, it's worth noticing as well there, human leaders are always referred to in the plural there. The Bible always envisages team leadership, not one-man leadership, and, and Peter here addresses the elders among you. Um, so as God's people live on mission for Christ in the face of opposition and slander and trial, what are such under-shepherds to do? Well, they are to shepherd. <laughs> Verse 2, they are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. In other words, they're to keep shepherding. They're to keep exercising oversight. They're they're not to run away and go somewhere easier and abandon their charge in the face of opposition. No, they are to keep leading and feeding and protecting and caring for God's flock, even in the face of opposition. And and what is such leadership to to look like? Firstly, notice, look, verse 2, it is to be willing leadership exercising oversight verse 2 not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you and, and I guess you know it's not hard to imagine is it um, that that in situations of physical persecution you know like some of the, the, the uh, situations we're seeing in places like North Korea or Nigeria uh, at the moment that the, the threat of physical danger might be enough to make leaders reluctant to serve it might make them want to flee or, or, or cave in to the pressure being brought to bear on them or, or, or to make them want to water down the, the, the truth for, for the sake of an easier life. And I don't think it's hard to imagine either how even in this country, you know, situations of political or cultural pressure on the church could be enough to make uh, leaders equally reluctant to lead and, and either to leave or, or to cave in to the culture or or simply to keep quiet for an easier life. But the kind of leaders that God would have you be, says Peter, are not begrudging leaders, but willing leaders, those who will keep leading through the times when it's tough. And of course, that is to be the attitude of Christian under-shepherds, because that was the attitude of the shepherd the Lord Jesus, who who said, uh, John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So to follow Christ's example as church leaders, to embrace his pattern of suffering followed by glory, is to be willing shepherds, not begrudging shepherds in the face of opposition, says Peter. Uh, But shepherds are not just to be willing leaders, but also eager servants. So, uh, end of verse 2, we are to lead not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And I think it's actually, it's predominantly money 
that, that Peter is thinking of here. And, and his point is that Christian leadership is not to be seen as a, as a means of self-gain, but rather as a means of eager service. So, so eager service rather than earthly reward is, is what should motivate us as leaders. And so leaders are, are to guard their hearts against greed and, and against self-interest generally. Uh, now, of course, money is, is not the only area of self-interest uh, that leaders can be tempted by. It can also be status, uh, I think, or power, or, or the praise of others, uh, and so on. But, but what Peter, I think, wants us to see here is, is e- e- leaders eager to serve whether their financial rewards are ample or kind of barely survivable. And, and of course, this too is to follow Christ's example, isn't it? You know, to, to use again that image of Jesus in John 10 as, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, you, you'll know that that's contrasted, isn't it, in, in the next verse with the hired hand uh, who, who, who cares more for his salary than he does for his sheep. That the Lord Jesus is the one who came to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and in the same way, under-shepherding is about serving, not self-serving. It's about the ministry, not the minister, if you like. So, so church leaders are to be willing leaders, not begrudging leaders. They're to be eager servants, not self-servants. Um, but, but also, uh, look at verse 3 where Peter says leaders are to be Christ-like examples rather than overbearing dictators. So not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Um, In in other words, to be a a leader is not to be given a mandate to throw your weight around, but rather it's to be given a mandate to to model Christ-likeness. Uh, to once again follow the example of the one who came to serve, not to be served. I, I found it um, heartbreaking, actually, over the last few years to hear too many reports of, of well-known evangelical pastors a- across the pond and here in the UK as well who, who have had to be removed from church leadership for bullying. Um, and, and Peter says here that that under the pressure and stress of, of opposition and, and suffering, churches more than ever need leaders who will not only proclaim Christ from their pulpits, but who will model Christ in their servant leadership. So, so, so Peter says, don't, don't lead begrudgingly or greedily or in a domineering way, but lead willingly and eagerly and, and with a Christ-like example. Huh. Thanks, Peter. Um, you know, we're all queuing up to be church leaders now, aren't we? <laughs> um, uh, if that doesn't put you off, uh, may, maybe nothing will, because if Christians generally should expect things to be tough now, well, that's going to be especially so, isn't it, for those who are willingly, eagerly, and, and with a Christ-like example, going to lead God's church through that opposition and, and suffering. But, you know, if you're thinking like, like me, <laughs> there's, there's no way you're going to get me into church leadership. It's a bit late for me, isn't it? Um, but, but have a look at verse 4, because actually there is some motivation 
here. Peter spelled out some wrong motivations to lead God's people, you know, financial gain or, or you know, desire to throw your weight around. Or, or, but, but in verse 4, he shows us that there is actually a right motivation to be a faithful leader, and, and that is the, the, the glorious prospect, verse 4, of an eternal reward from the chief shepherd. Uh, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, so he's kind of keen to point out that, that when he returns, he's returning as the chief shepherd, uh, which means, of course, that not only are uh, human shepherds merely under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, but it means we're only temporary shepherds as well, because the chief shepherd is, is returning. But there's a suggestion here, isn't there, of a reward for faithful under-shepherds, what he calls an unfading crown of glory. So, so of course, all Christians uh, expect to receive, as as chapter 1, verse 7 puts it, praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. But within that, I think Peter seems to want to particularly encourage those who will take on the responsibility of, of leading God's people, that that when the chief shepherd comes back, he will reward those who have labored um, in that way. But of course, I think the big thing to notice here is that it's the future reward of verse 4 that should motivate uh, their leadership in the here and now, and not the shameful gain uh, of verse 2. I think that's the the big point. So, So what kind of church leadership is needed if churches are to live on mission for Christ in a hostile world, well, the the answer is that it needs leaders who embrace the pattern of Christ's suffering, uh, the pattern of present suffering, followed by future glory. And, of course, there's huge encouragement there, isn't there, for, for church leaders in the future glory part of that. But there's also huge challenge in the call for leaders to embrace the present suffering in the here and now part of that as well. So would you pray for church leaders, please? You know, pray for Anthony and Rob and and Ollie and myself as we seek to lead here. Pray for other church leaders too, that that we would keep feeding and protecting and caring for for the flock and not run from it in, in times of trial. And, you know, although we always fall short of of God's ideal for our ministries, do do pray that that we would seek to serve faithfully and sacrificially um, with our lives and and not just with our lips, Um, and and looking to Christ as our example um, and with our eye on on the future crown, not, not shameful gain. So what does it look like to embrace that the pattern of Christ's life Um, not now as an elder in in this next section, but as part of a church community. Have a look at verses 5 to 11, which which I've called embracing suffering and glory in church membership. Um, So have a look with me at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, so he starts there, doesn't he, by addressing the younger 
members of the church. That, that might simply mean those younger in age and, and, and you know, perhaps uh, not so ready to embrace submissiveness. Um, or he could be using the word younger just as a contrast with the word elder to simply mean the, the rest of the church family. Could, could mean that. But actually, either way, you'll see that what he's doing is picking up on this theme of submission, isn't it, that, that, that he raised in chapters 2 and 3. You know, to, to live for Christ in the world is to be a submissive person. Uh, Peter's repeated phrase in, in those earlier chapters is be subject to isn't it? Be subject to those in civic authority over you. Chapter 3, verse 13. Be subject as servants to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 18. Be subject as wives to your husbands. Chapter 3, verse 1. And and here, look, chapter 5, verse 5. It's the same phrase. Be subject to the elders. Uh, Of course, the writer to Hebrews um, gives a similar instruction, doesn't he? Chapter uh, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And, and Peter here, he's, he, he's either addressing the whole church and saying the same thing, or he's addressing the younger people in the church who might struggle with this more and giving them a special reminder of it. Um, of course, I think, uh, again, such submission needs to be qualified, doesn't it? That the, the phrase, be subject to, uh, means to have... Uh, like a general disposition towards. In, in other words, um, our attitude should be one of overall willingness uh, uh, to support the, the direction and the, the, the guidance of our leaders. Um, uh, it, it should be an attitude of, of humble readiness to submit and to follow rather than uh, an attitude of kind of cynical resistance and criticism Um, So it's not a call for blind obedience. It's a call to have a a, a humble, submissive uh, attitude, posture towards those who are trying to lead the church. Not not begrudgingly or greedily or or in a domineering way, but willingly and eagerly and and with a Christ-like example. And and that kind of humble submission gets broadened out. Look, in the last half of verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's not just in, in our attitude to church leadership that we're to demonstrate humility, but, but actually it's to, it's to permeate our attitude to one another within the church. And, and what Peter means by the word humility there is, a, is an attitude which puts others first which, of course, is to follow the example of Christ, isn't it? Maybe you remember John 13 and... Uh, Jesus celebrating his, his last meal with his disciples um, uh, just before going to the cross. We're told he humbled himself and took off his outer garments and picked up a towel and, and a bowl of water and, and washed his disciples' feet. And, and, and John records that he did this knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God. In, in other words, Jesus humbled himself in the knowledge that God would soon exalt him. And, and, and Peter here is calling us uh, to, to do the same thing, isn't he? Look in, in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is the kind of Christ-like attitude towards each other that, that needs to characterize the life of the church if we're going to live for Christ in a hostile world. It's the kind of humble, submissive, loving attitude towards each other uh, 
that, that is not concerned with my needs, but the needs of others. Not seeking my good, but the good of, of others. That's the attitude we need to cultivate if we're going to live on mission for Christ in, in the new normal. And, and so Peter says, well then, let Christ-like humility characterize your lives within the church, both towards your leaders and towards each other. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves. Put others first, says Peter. Cast any anxieties you may have about that onto God, verse 7, because he cares for you. And, and humble yourselves, that he may, at the appropriate time, exalt you. Uh, reminded me of uh, Robert Murray McChain, who was the famous uh, 19th century Scottish preacher who went, uh, he went overseas on a, on a long mission. But he, he wrote and, and he prayed before he went that revival might break out while he was away. Uh, he wrote this, he said, I, I sometimes think that a great blessing may come to my people in my absence. Often God does not bless us where we're in the midst of our labours, lest we shall say, my hand and my eloquence have done it. He removes us into silence and then pours down such a blessing that there's not room to receive it, so that all may see it and cry out, it is the Lord. And actually that's exactly what happened. A huge revival broke out while a stand-in preacher was filling his pulpit for a few months. And, and was he jealous? Well, well, no, he wasn't. Actually, he'd already written uh, to the preacher and, and, and said to him, I, I hope you may be a thousand times more blessed among them than I ever was. And, and on hearing of the, the revival taking place, he said, I have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever means, whatever instrument. Isn't that great? One of the, kind of, one of the greatest preachers of his time rejoicing that another man is seeing revival in his own church, as, as it were, while he's away. Uh, humility. So, so what does it look like to follow the pattern of Christ's life, that the pattern of present suffering followed by future glory as a church member? Well, it means living lives of humility towards each other. But notice, look in verses 8 and 9, it also means that we're to be sober-minded and watchful. Uh, by that, he means kind of uh, clear-headed, uh, self-controlled, spiritually um, alert, if you like. Why? Verse 8, because your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we're to be spiritually alert because our enemy is like a prowling lion. He, he likes to attack us, you know, suddenly, viciously, when, when we least expect it. So, so we need to be spiritually clear-minded and alert, not spiritually dopey and drowsy. Friend, I wonder whether you would say this morning that you are spiritually alert or spiritually drowsy. Um, are, are you ready to resist, verse 9, or are you ready to be devoured, <laughs> And, and notice, too, that, that the devil's activity here is linked with the opposition and suffering that Peter's readers are facing. Verse 9, resist him, that the, the devil, uh, uh, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, the opposition and suffering we face as God's people is something that the devil can use to devour us through. 
You know, for, for example, he can, uh, he can use our suffering, can't he, to make us doubt God's goodness to us, ca- cause us to abandon uh, our trust in him. Which is why, uh, in the midst of the opposition and suffering, verse 9, we must resist the devil and be firm, stand firm in our faith, knowing that we are not the only ones to be suffering for Christ. He hasn't abandoned us. This is to be expected. Indeed, our brothers throughout the world are facing the same thing. And, and this is because present suffering and future glory is the pattern of Christ's life and the pattern that we are to embrace as our own. But we do so, verse 10, knowing that by God's grace, the suffering that we face will eventually lead to glory. Have a look at verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see? Present suffering leads to future glory. In other words, the suffering that we should expect to face now will come to an end because we're destined for glory. And and when that day comes, the God of all grace will make sure that we enter glory, fully restored, fully confirmed, strengthened, and established. Verse 10. Isn't that that brilliant? As as Peter ends his, his letter, he wants us to have absolute confidence that God will bring us home to collect on that inheritance that he pointed us to at the beginning of the letter, that, that inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and, and kept in heaven for, for you and me. Friends, P- Peter calls us in, in this final chapter to embrace the pattern of Christ's life as both leaders and members of his church. As church leaders, we need to be willing leaders and eager servants and Christ-like examples so that the church will not go astray in a hostile world. As church members, we need attitudes of submission and humility to each other. We need to stand firm in our faith in the face of suffering and opposition, looking forward with confidence to our future glory. And for all of us, leaders and, and members alike, to do that is to embrace present suffering in the knowledge of future glory. Do do, do, do you see, friends? As, as, As elect exiles, we're to live for Christ in a hostile world where where opposition and and suffering for Christ are, are realities. This is what it was like for Christ. And to follow him is to embrace that pattern for ourselves. So yes, Peter says, we can expect struggle and trial. (laughs) But the wonderful conclusion of the letter is that we can have absolute confidence that God will bring us home to glory. And, And when that day comes, any suffering that we may have faced now will pale into insignificance when compared with the eternity of glory that we will share with him. Let's pray together, shall we? 
Father, we thank you um, so much for this, uh, this letter we've been able to study over these weeks. Um, we pray that through it, um, you would work in us by your Spirit to be followers of Christ's example as we live in the world, um, seeking to point people to him through our living and our speaking, embracing present suffering with the, the confident hope of future glory. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we, uh, as we close, we're going to take an opportunity to respond to God's word as we sing. Um, Christ is mine forevermore.